this day and age. Um, welcome to Heritage Brethren Christ Church. It's a joy and blessing always to be with you. I'm excited this morning because we're starting a series on David. David is uh, someone that means a lot to God. And as I thought through and planned for this series and looked at my life, I realized that David is someone that means a lot to me. David is probably the, the, the most known character in all the scriptures. You know, um, a writer once said, we call it First and Second Samuel, but we need to combine it and just call it the book of David. In both books, they cover the life of David. So in one sense, David is the most known person that we have. Uh, as I was thinking about it, I realized, though, that David is kind of like the Old Testament representation or example of John in the New Testament. You know, we focused on John. I said, John was Jesus' best friend. But I think when you look at David, you look at the life that he led, and you looked at who he was to God, I think you can make a case that David's relationship with God was very, very special. But one of the things in studying David is we learn that God is the real hero of the story. That's your life hack for the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times we teach Old Testament, we teach about these great heroes of the past, heroes of the faith. But when you look a little bit deeper, what you recognize and what you need to see and hold on to is that God is the hero of the story. What I loved most about David, though, is he's perfectly human, yet also perfectly loved by God. I looked at his relationship with God and I said, man, he's a man after God's own heart. That's what I want them to say about me someday. But I got older and I started reading the stories. I was like, God still loved even him? That's good. It helps the rest of us, right? And then I thought a little bit more. What I realized was that, you know, when I first came to this country, I, um, I, I knew a lot about the Bible. Uh, my, my parents were real, real concerned I'd grow up to be Muslim. We had Muslims and Christians in my family. And, and personally, I hated the Christians. They were hypocritical. Um, the Muslims were more familial. You know, they just seemed to like me more. It had nothing to do with my uh, grandfather being the Muslim chief and me being the youngest child. Nothing to do with that. Um, but I just thought the Christians were very, very hypocritical. And so my parents almost like force-fed me Bible stories, right? Um, and what was great about that is when I came to America, I found out that in Sunday school, you get a nice little chart. And if you answer questions, you get candy and stars. And, and my goal was to be the star of Sunday school, right? Every question, I would know the answer. That's because you had the most stars. So obviously, you knew everything, you know? Um, I love that. But one, one um, series that we did when I first came in that September of 92 is we walked through the life of David. And what I recognize is, you know, I was very intrigued by this relationship that they had. Again, that God so deeply loved them, that he's so deeply human, and God still loves him, right? I was so impressed by that. And the fact that even though he messed up a lot, you know, he was always defined by how much he praised God, how much he held on to God, how much he relied on God, that God said, man, he's after my own heart. I remember as a kid saying, you know, I want that. But what I also told my Sunday school teachers, though, is that, you know, I love David. I love this relationship he has with God. But I'm a little, you know, like perplexed by something. They're like, what? I'm like, how do we know for sure, you know, God loves him? And I remember my Sunday school teacher's like, are you asking about David or are you asking about yourself? And I was just like, why are you talking so deep, you know? Why are you trying to get so personal, you know? But what I didn't tell her at the time is that, you know, I had been struggling sleeping at night. And, and for, for probably a couple months, I wouldn't go to sleep at night. And probably the reason, well, the whole reason was because I was like, man, if I die in my sleep, I'm going to hell. And that's what I was dealing with at nine years old, you know? So I talked to my Sunday school teacher, and I was just like, I love God, and I think he loves me, but I don't really want to go to hell, you know? And, and I remember my Sunday school teacher, Carol DeGogliano, you know, and she was just like, um you know, you can just ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. I was like, well, yeah, that's what the Bible says. She goes, but, but you can do it. I was like, oh, 
you're right, you know? And I remember she led me to the Lord. I had a scooter back then, because again, I was the coolest kid ever. Um, I had a scooter and we lived, our church was on the hill, so I, I scooted down the hill and I was like all carefree and happy. And I came home and I took probably my only nap I've taken in the last 30 years, right? And I slept great. Um, so. I tell you that story because when I look at David and I realize that, you know, it's Old Testament, so sometimes we're like, oh, what do you got from the Old Testament? I think we can learn a lot. And I think David's going to show us a lot about our God. And I think in showing us a lot about our God, there might be people in here who think they know God, but then get to rededicate their life to God. Or in looking at David's relationship with God, say, you know what, I want to follow him that way. And that'll be a blessing. Maybe some of us, all of us will then start saying, you know, I want to be after God's own heart. Maybe our hope is going to be renewed in God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of you. Thank you so much for how much you love us. Thank you so much for how present you are. Thank you so much for how good you are, that the mighty God who created all things cares for us. God, we thank you now for your servant David. We thank you for his life. We thank you for not just the ups and the downs, but your faithfulness and your presence throughout. Lord, now be with us as we listen. Be with us as we hear your words. Let it come to us in a new spirit. Come upon us and open our eyes so that we can see these wonderful things. In your holy and precious name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to 1 Samuel 16. We'll be reading 1 Samuel 16, the first 13 verses. We'll also have them up front. 1 Samuel 16 starts. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and you say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all of the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Our story begins, and it's real, real fascinating that in our story about David, our introduction about David, he doesn't show up until the very end. Our story begins, and the three principal players on the scene are the Lord God, Samuel, and Saul. In fact, if you read this passage in the scripture in the Hebrew, it actually doesn't just say the Lord, it calls him Yahweh. 
Why is that important? That's important because when we say the Lord, we sometimes think of him as just the God who's high and mighty. We think of him as the God who's so far away. But yet when the writer of this book decided to tell this story, he uses his personal name. Why does that matter? Our personal names denotes relationship. It denotes closeness. It denotes connection to us. He doesn't just call him the Lord God Almighty. He uses this name Yahweh. A few days ago, um, Esty was over our house, and, and I've never seen anyone more millennial than this moment, right? Esty had five devices spread out between my dining room table and all the way into the kitchen. I kid you not. And somehow he was using like four of them, right? And I thought he was in his own world. I don't even know what he was doing. And Shell and I were getting ready to leave, and Shell's like, Henry, we got to go. And Esty's head like swung around. I think we almost broke the child, the boy's neck because he was just like, what happened? You know, and I was just like, it's my birth name. You know, it's okay to call me Henry. For her, you know, it's fine, you know? And he was just like... I don't think I've ever heard anyone call you Henry. Like, that's just, you know. But personal names matter. They denote closeness. They denote relationship. So I think one of the first things we need to hold on to in looking at David and God, David doesn't just look at God as the Lord. He calls him Yahweh. He knows him personally. And what that tells us, what that informs us is simply this. Our God is our personal Savior. Our God wants to be known and makes himself known for us. Our God is not just up there and mighty. Our God is down here with us and present. We can know our God personally. We don't just have to call him God. We can call him Jesus. Personal names matter. Second person on the scene is Samuel. Samuel is a very, very fascinating in this passage because Samuel, on one hand, has all the power in Israel, really. And what I mean by that is from the very beginning, Samuel, his name means heard by God. It, it goes to the story of, of his mom, Hannah. Hannah was married and, and her husband had two wives, but I, I, we think she was the head wife, right? But in that culture, what was fascinating is that in that culture, women were defined by their ability to birth sons to carry on the line. Women were defined by their ability to have sons. And Hannah, even though she was loved by her husband, I still think it's tricky how you have family dinners, but I wasn't there. They worked it out. Um, But she was loved by her husband, but she couldn't birth any children. And one day she goes to the temple and she's crying out to God and saying, God, I need a son. And and would you please give me a son? If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. If you give me a son, you can have him. You can do anything you want with him. And and the, the prophet walks by Eli and he sees her and he's just like, it's too early. Are you drunk? Like, calm down, you know? I don't know if Eli just prayed all straight-laced or whatever, but he saw her emotional and, and crying out. And he's just like, I don't know if you're drunk or anything, but this is not the place for that, right? And she goes back to him and says, no, 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 I'm just crying out to God. I'm praying to God. And God hears her prayers. God says, oh, if I give you a son, you'll give him back to me? That sounds like a great plan. So she has Samuel. And give Samuel to, to, to the prophet Eli. And what's fascinating about Samuel's story is he grows up with Eli, the prophet, who's getting old. And his sons are wayward and not following God. And, and, and God prepares Samuel for the ministry. And Samuel has a very, very interesting ministry. He's one of the few prophets that holds two different roles. In the Old Testament, prophets were either prophets or seers. The prophets were the ones who voiced the word of the Lord. Like God gave them the word and they, they preached it to the people. They told the people. Right? The Navi. But there was also seers who were the people that God sent visions to. Samuel had both. So when I say Samuel had all the power, what I mean by that is Samuel was God's messenger. He was God's conduit to the people. 
And that's who is uh, uh, walking around in this scene. The third one is Saul. And I think Saul gets a little bit of a bad rap. Um, the reason I think God rejected Saul is important. But first in understanding Saul is you have to understand that Saul was just a man of the people. He's what the people wanted. They looked around. They saw their other nations. They're just like, we want to be just like them. They looked around, they saw the other nations, and they knew that, you know, these kings would come out in all their glory and honor, and that you could look at them and be all impressed. But also more than that, the kings would physically, physically lead them out into battle. So Samuel's so disheartened by this. And he goes to them, he goes, you don't really want a king. You know, you don't want a king, they'll tax you. They'll tax you, and it'll be all for them. You know, and they're just like, no, nah, it's okay. You know, we'll, we'll be fine with the tax. He's like, you don't understand. He'll take your sons and put them in the army. They're like, no, nah, it's fine. He's like, he'll take your daughters and make them work for them. That yard, that field that you have, everything is going to now belong to them. They're going to choose the best of it. And they're like, no, 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 we want a king. What's fascinating is Samuel is angry at the people, but Yahweh is heartbroken at the people. You see, what they wanted was to be just like everybody else, but what did God want for them? To be set apart. What they wanted was a, was, was a king who could lead them into battle. What they forgot was that Yahweh was the one who was with them and led them out of Egypt. What they forgot was that Yahweh was the one who was the pillar of fire and the cloud by night, the one who provided manna and quail in the desert. What they forgot is that Yahweh was the one who made the sun stand still. What they forgot was that Yahweh is the one who made Jericho in all its glory. The walls came down. Yahweh was the one who defeated the giants before. He led them into battle every single day. They forgot that God was on their side because they wanted a king. And one of the most fascinating things about this is that the kings would tax for their own personal coffers, for their own personal glory. They would take their, their, their tax to, to build up for their family and maybe their tribe. They would take all the money for them. But it's fascinating and contrasted with how God taxes. When God collected his tithes and offerings, he did it for his priest. He did it for his people who were marginalized, and he did it for his kingdom. Kings tax for themselves. God asks us to tithe for his kingdom. It's beautiful because ever since the Old Testament, God has always asked his people to give, not for him, not because he needs it, but because his people need it but because he can be glorified through the work of those tithes and offerings. In the ancient Near East, you know, you had all these different temples. You had all these different gods. There was one god who had a temple the size of seven football fields. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so I had to throw that in there, right? <laughs> Context. And these kings were defined, and these gods were defined by how powerful and how big and lavish they were. Our god was the god of the universe, and he lived in a tent. These kings were defined, these gods were defined by, by getting the best of their foods. And, and there was multiple people groups who would put the food before the altar of the god. And, and you and I would be like, the food just rotted, you know, or the sun burned it out. And they'd be like, no, the god ate it through his eyes. And I kid you not, it's an ancient Near Eastern text. You find yourself in your Arcadian book, you can find this truth. But our God asks for food to be provided, not so he can consume it or through his eyes, but so his priests can eat. So the poor can eat. That's the difference here. So God's heart is broken. He led them into battle. They want someone else to lead them into battle. He loved them so deeply. They didn't, they didn't, they were like, well, that's good, but we need someone we can see. He wanted them to be set apart for his glory, for his kingdom. They want to be just like everybody else. 
and he taxes them to make sure no one gets left behind, that everyone gets to eat in Israel. And the priests are provided for, but they wanted a king that they would willingly give it all to for himself. A passage begins with Yahweh coming to Samuel and says, Samuel, stop mourning. I've rejected Saul. It's time for you to get on a journey and find the one who I've chosen. See, Yahweh rejected Saul not because Israel wanted a king. If you think about it, God from the very beginning had kings and kingdom as part of his plan. If you go back to Genesis, you'll see that in the very beginning when God created us as male and female together in the image of God, he calls us co-regents. That means that together, male and female, we are to rule the earth. That's what God intended. But you see, God's not upset that Israel wanted king. It's the kind of king they wanted. When we go to Revelation like we did last week, we also know that our king is coming, isn't he? Christ will come again as king over all of creation. God is not upset about kings. God just wants you to pick the right kind of king. And that's why Saul is rejected, not just because, oh, he sinned and and he didn't listen to God, but he was not the right type of king for God's people. You see, Saul appeared kingly. He had the look. He had the initial character. He actually loved his people. One of the things that's, that's mistaken about Saul all the time is he was a brilliant military strategist, especially in the beginning. And Saul made these decisions. He stopped worrying about what God wanted. And he started looking at the people and saying, like, I will do what the people need because I'm the sovereign now. Saul was a man of the people. He only wanted to do what the people wanted to keep his power. But yet God says, I want a different kind of king. And Samuel, because this is his God's anointed, even though he didn't want a king, you know, he's walked with Saul. He's seen God work through Saul and he's heartbroken. And God says, you got to go. You got to go because I finally found my king. I finally found the one who's going to be about me and my people and my kingdom. I found the one. You need to go and anoint him. So Samuel, who again, I remind you, has all the power in Israel. He speaks for God. He speaks to God. God sends him visions. And he goes, but God, what about Saul? And God's like, I told you to go anoint the one. And he's like, but Saul might kill me. And it's fascinating, right? Because I think we do the same thing when we have giants that come up in our lives. And we didn't get to David and Goliath yet, but this is not the first time that God slayed a Goliath, right? Samuel has all the power. He has the God of the universe who has allowed him to be his voice. He gets visions from God alone. He has conversations. Like, I have conversations with God, and I think it's God talking. I look for confirmation elsewhere. But he has conversations with God that are active, right? But yet he fears Saul, who's now rejected by God. And he goes, God, but what about Saul? And I think God was like unfazed by this. He's so excited at the prospect of David. He says, you know, fine, okay? Like get a cow, you know, go get a heifer, you know. Tell him we're going to have a worship service. And in this worship service, you know, you just do what I tell you. Have everybody gather. And then and, and when they gather, I want you to go to Jesse to the Bethlehemite because one of his sons is going to be my king. What's fascinating about Bethlehem is that, you know, I think sometimes we forget the work that's been done over hundreds of years to make Bethlehem really, really special. You know, the fact that Jesse is from Bethlehem is akin to being big fish in a little pond. So, for example, if I told you, hey, I'm the fastest boy in my school. And you're like, well, that's great. How many boys are in your school? And I was like, well, it's just me. <laughs> big fish, little pond, right? Or if I was like, you know, 
I'm also the smartest person in my school. And you're like, oh, wow, valedictorian. Like, how many people are in your school? I was like, I'm homeschooled and it's just me in class, right? Big fish, little pond. That's what Bethlehem was. Bethlehem is not on the map as like the, the place of God at this point. And this is where God sends Samuel, and Samuel gets to town, and it's fascinating. Samuel has all the power. The proof of all the power is when he walks into town, Samuel's about 90-something years old, we think. He's an old man. But when he walks in, all the elders and the chiefs of Bethlehem, they all gather, and they come to him. They're like, hey, Samuel, is everything good? <laughs> hey, why are you here? Is everything okay? Like, do you come in peace? Like, who's going to die, Samuel? And Samuel's like, no, 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 no. I do come in peace. And we're going to have a worship service. And there's this word that comes up in this, this part of the passage I love. And it's this word called consecrate. I think we've lost some of that. You know, one of the things that the Old Testament people were blessed with is ritual. You know, they were new to knowing God. They were new to, to having a relation with God. So God actually implemented physical things that they had to do to remind them of who he is. I think we forget some of that. I mean, we have baptism and we have the, the Lord's Supper. But this idea of consecration was simply that before every worship service, you had to get ready. Before every worship service, you had to be right with God. You had to come with him ready to worship, ready to praise, ready to celebrate. You had to consecrate yourself. And I think we've lost some of that. We come to church, but do we consecrate ourselves before we walk through the doors? We go to work, but do we consecrate ourselves before we walk through those doors? Do we consecrate ourselves and say, that, Lord, you set me apart. Lord, I'm giving you myself. Lord, use me in powerful ways. Use me in mundane ways. Lord, just use me. Are we willing to get back to be a people who want to be consecrated before we ever worship before the king? It's not enough to just come to church. You got to have your heart ready. You got to be connected with God. You got to be worshiping all week. This isn't the capstone of your week. This might be the beginning of your week, but you got to consecrate yourself before. And Samuel has this worship service. They kill the cow. Last service I said they kill the heifer, and I said, ooh, context, that could be trouble. But they kill the cow, and they have this worship service. And the service begins, and, and, and God is just brilliant, right? He could have just said, you know, big fish, little town, I come to Jesse. But he invites all the town there, and he goes one by one. Samuel then calls out Jesse. And Jesse lines up his sons probably in birth order. The first one is Eliab. And Eliab looked the part. You know, it was, like, we, we talk about his height, but you have to remember, in this culture, firstborns had, uh, you know, like crazy power. There's no other way to put it, especially firstborn sons. Now, in most cultures, you know, when your parents pass away, you know, you might divvy this stuff up, right? Not in this culture. In this culture, everything went to who? the firstborn son. So think about the power that Eliab had, right? Jesse was a farmer. He was a shepherd. He was big fish in this little pond. He's obviously well-connected in Bethlehem. And everything that he works for goes to Eliab. And the other seven sons, they're at his grace. You know, like whatever he decides you get, you get. That's how they were going to split it. So obviously he's the first one that comes forth. And God is like, yeah, he looks the part but for what they wanted, but he's not who I want. Abinadab comes next, Shema comes next, and Samuel's like, nope, nope. And then four more sons pass through, and they're not even important that Samuel doesn't even give them a name. We find out their names later on in a different text, right? All we know is that they come through, one, two, three, four, and Samuel's like, nope, 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 nothing, right? And then finally Samuel goes to Jesse, and he's like, um, is this like all of your children? Is this all your sons? Like, is this it? And, and then Jesse's like, well, I mean, there's David, you know, like... 
he's like out shepherding. And the thing I think we need to realize is that David actually has done a lot of work for us to elevate shepherding. You know, one of the things you learn about David, I think it's the most beautiful thing, is David teaches us that whatever you've been through, if you give it to God, he'll use it for your glory. God will always use the experiences that you go through if you give it to him for his glory. So when David talks about God being his shepherd, you know why? Because David was a shepherd. David was sitting there probably with his little heart playing and saying, oh, my goodness gracious, the way I provide for the sheep is the way my God provides for me. Oh, wow, the way I protect my sheep is the way my God protects me. Oh, my goodness, the way that I look out for their goodness, the way I walk through the valley of shadow of death with them, walking through these tight spaces is the way my God walks with me. David did a lot of work to elevate shepherding, but in that culture, shepherding was the worst job you can have to be a son. Think about it this way. You know, when I grew up, we had three people in the house. The youngest always got the worst job. In theory, we had a rotation. But in theory, the two older of us dictated the rotation. Now, imagine adding five of us to it. So however many siblings you have, you know, for, for Judah, this is easy, right? He's like, I got six brothers. This is easy. I can figure this. The rest of us, you got to use imagination, right? There's eight sons. There's all these jobs to be done. And David actually gets the worst of all the jobs. Think about how unimportant David is. They have a big worship service in this little town. They invite everybody in the town to come. They celebrate and worship God, and his own father lines up all the sons and doesn't even think to invite David. It'd be one thing to invite him, but not include him in the seven, but they left him in the field. Again, we've elevated shepherding like, oh my gosh, David's a shepherd, that's wonderful. His family is like, David's a shepherd, he stays out of trouble. He can't break nothing, he can't anger anybody, he's just talking to the sheep. Like, that's his job, talk to the sheep, David. Play them some music or something, right? They forget about him. And I think that's important because, you know, David might be the youngest and his name might be beloved, but among even his family, he's the runt of the litter. But it's beautiful in a way because it reminds us, right, that God sees all of us. That it's not just the ones of us who are dolled up all nice on the outside. It's not just the ones of us who are forward in front of people. It's not just the ones of us who are the loudest, right? God sees every single one of us. And the beauty of our God is that we think in dreams. God thinks in purpose. We think about dreams for the future, plans for the future. God thinks in what is my purpose for you for the future? And it's also interesting when David comes, right? You know, I always thought this was funny as a kid. Some, some translation says he was ruddy. You know, some translation says he was, he was glowing. You know, he was, he was healthy looking. And I always thought that was weird. I was like, why did he say It's because he's the runt of the litter. It's because in that culture, if you're the eighth son, you know, not only are you not thought of, you might be maimed, you might be paralyzed. There's got to be something wrong with you. So Samuel, in writing this book, wanted you to know that, like, oh, no, no, it's not shocking. He's glowing. Look at him. He's healthy. He's even good looking. It's like shocking to Samuel. It's like, oh my gosh, the run of the litter. He's like healthy? This is interesting. He's not, yeah, he's a cute kid. This is fascinating, you know? He's shocked. And that's why it's in the text, right? Because if you read it in any other way, it's like, why is he so important about being glowing and healthy? It's because he's not supposed to be. The second thing that's fascinating here is that David is chosen and he's anointed in front of his brethren. One of the things in our culture, we made anointing something it's not. We make anointing some step of like supernatural, like now I'm anointed by the Lord. You're anointed. You're so anointed. You know what anointed means in the scripture? Chosen to do a job. That's all it means. 
God chooses all of us to do his job, amen? God anoints all of us, not because we're special, but because he's special and he wants to work through us. God makes us special in the work that we do if we're about his kingdom coming and his will being done. David is anointed, and I love this part, and I missed it for years. He's anointed among his family first. We call this David's anointing, but this isn't where he's anointed as king over all of Israel. That doesn't come for a little bit. This is simply where he's anointed as, I have chosen you for my purpose. The closest thing we have to this in our culture is baptism, I believe. Because when we're baptized, we testify to, to what God's done for us, what he's been doing on the inside. We want to step out and, and say it on the outside to not just the whole world, but to our world, to our people, to our church. And that's what happens here, is that God anoints David, not just because of the work to do, but among his people, among his church, among his brethren, to say, I have chosen you. That's the joy of baptism. That's the joy of this passage is that God has chosen David not yet to be king, but just to be his. And that's what this passage is about. And then the spirit of Yahweh falls on David very, very powerfully from that day forward. So our lesson in this story is simply this. Our God always looks at the heart. David is exactly what God is looking for. And there's four reasons why David is exactly what God is looking for. The first one is that David had no desire. He didn't wake up that morning. Maybe it was a Tuesday morning. I picked Tuesday. So only seven days of the week, you got to pick one. He didn't wake up that Tuesday morning and say, I'm going to be king over all of Israel. He just went about his business. But David was a priest. I think we need to hold on to that. Because Saul was all about being king. David was all about being a priest. What's the difference with a priest? A priest has access to God and access to people. And they spend their life bringing the two together. Access to God and access to people. And when you look at David time and time again, you will see his deep access to God, but you will also see his deep love for his people. And he spends his life leveraging the two, trying to bring them together. That's the role of priest. You're called because you're blessed because you have access to God, but you're also blessed because your people are your people. Who you know is who you know. What you know is what you know. And who you know, you can tell them Jesus loves them, and I can tell them Jesus loves them. But because of your relationship with them, it goes back to that personal thing, right? Because of your personal relationship with them, it will be more coming from you than from me. Amen. We're all called to be priests. God loved David because when he looked at him, he's like, he will be my priest for the people. He will have access to me, access to the people, and he will work to bring them together because he's a servant. Second thing about God that he recognizes with David is that David is about God's kingdom, not his own. And this is fascinating because that's very contrasting with what Saul was. Saul was like, I'm now king over all of Israel. I have the power. Let's consolidate the power in me. Let me be your sovereign. David is always going to be about his father's business. And I love that. And it's a reminder to all of us that we're called not to be about building our little fiefdoms here on earth, not to be about me and mine here on earth, but what are we doing to build our father's kingdom? God loved David because he was a priest first, because he was always about God's kingdom first. The third thing about David that I love is that he was fully reliant on God. It's really amazing. When he was on a run, David says, Yahweh is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. 
when he was a little bit depressed and no one was around him that he could trust, he said, help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. David felt deeply, you know. But also when he was, you know, maybe in a better mood, when he sat back and thought about it, he says, man, Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. David always fully relied on God. That's why he could say, be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? David always fully relied on God. I'm 35 years old, and I think the lesson of my 35 years has been simply this. Do you fully rely on me? Because that's the thing about this life. God will always ask that question. In our culture, we think it's all about the decisions we make and don't make. And God will always say, but do you fully trust me? See, it's not about whether you go right or whether you go left. It's about whether or not you fully trust God. Because if you trust God and you go right, he'll bless it. If you trust God and you go right and he wants you to go left, you know what? We have a God who makes the crooked path straight. And we have a God who will say, you know what? I wanted you to go right, but you went left. But because you trust me, let's see why you should go right. And he'll bless it. But then in all of that, though, if you fully give it to God, it's amazing because he will use that past experience to you help someone else. And that's David's life in a nutshell. There was times he should have went right. And he did, and God blessed it. There was times he should have went right, and he went left, and God was like, eh, let's make your crooked path straight, David. But then, in all that he lived, in all that he did, God used his experience to bless us, even us today. And I'm not just talking about David being you know, an ancestor of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I'm talking about the fact that David's name is still known. You know, it wasn't until college I knew David was Jewish. Because the name that's in every culture. Right? It wasn't until college I realized that, you know, that star of David is really the star of David. You know, I was just like, I just thought that was a Jewish side, you know? The thing I love the most about David is he's fully reliant on God. But then here's the last one that we need to hold on to. And this is what God loved about David above everything else. It wasn't just that he's a priest. It wasn't just that he wants to build God's kingdom and not his own. It wasn't just that he's fully reliant on him. It's that his heart was right with God. You know, in our culture, we think about heart, we think about something emotional, we think about feel good, we think about the seed of our emotions. To David and his people, heart was something a little bit deeper than that. Your heart was your mind, your heart was your will, your heart was your soul, your heart was your understanding, your conscience, your character, your moral character, your inclination. In essence, your heart was the ethos of who you are. Your heart was what I like to call the default. What is your default position, right? What is your default position? And for David, when God looks at that, he says, oh, my goodness, the truest representation of David is someone who loves me. The truest representation of David is someone who lives for me and my kingdom. The truest representation of David is someone who's going to be about my business. That's what God means by heart. It's not that, oh, I looked at David and it's just like, well, he makes me feel good or I like him. It's no, the truest representation of who David is is someone who fully loves me, someone who's fully living for me, someone who's going to be about my kingdom. That's what God loved about David's heart, that his inward makes the outward fruit possible. You know, David shows this time and time again. When you read through First and Second Samuel, there's so many times that David forgives his enemies. I think there might be as many times he forgives his enemies and David actually engages in battle. You know, Saul, who, you know, 
after David is anointed, you know, he comes to the kingdom and he sits in the court of Saul. And then like Saul's kids actually start to love David more than their own father. And there's all this tension. Saul tries to kill David time and time again. And David keeps sparing him. When Jesus says, love your enemies, you know, he wasn't just thinking about what his father God wanted, but he probably was talking to an audience that knew that David, their greatest king, did the same. But the last thing about heart is that even in Jesus' day, the ancient Jews understood heart as a treasure chest. And what they meant by that is, you know, your experience matters. But for a lot of us, we're too good at, at taking the good things God has done and keep it in the back of our brains, right? You spill it to the back of your brain, and then when life happens, you're just like, I don't know what to do. So what the ancient Jews taught, uh, what they taught each other to do is, when God does something wonderful, store it in your heart. When God is faithful and carried you through, hold on to that. When God does something miraculous in your life, bless him for it and hold on to it. And think of your heart as like this treasure chest that you're taking all these experiences, all these good things that God's doing, and putting it in there. Why? Because tomorrow will come. The dark days will come. The struggles will come. And I'm telling you, I can tell you to hold on to God in the struggle. But God wants you to hold on to how he's carried you through to help you through the struggle. See, there's a difference. If I just say, hold on to God, you're like, well, I'm trying. But if I say, how has God shown himself to you? How has God carried you through? How has God healed you? How has God healed someone else? How is God working and moving? How has he worked before? Don't just keep that in the back of your mind. Store it in your heart so when the dark days come, you can open up that treasure trove and say, praise God, he's good. Praise God, he's faithful. Praise God, he's with me. Praise God, he's carrying me through. It's not just by holding on to something we can't hold on to. Your experience matters. Your life matters. And what God's carrying you through, he can use that to help you when the tomorrow comes. And humbly, humbly, he can use you and that experience to help someone else. When we think about David and his heart being right with God, I think we need to end with these four questions. What God was looking for was a priest. Are you a priest to your people? Because all of us in this room have people. We have families, we have friends, we have people we work with, we have acquaintances, we have people that are in our everyday scenes. But if God is calling you to be a priest, that means you're saying, yes, I have access to God, but God is saying, you also have access to these people. How are you presenting me to them? And how are you bringing them to me? Because that's the job of a priest. And all of us, remember, God, even in the Old Testament, says, I want not a bunch of kings and queens. I want a kingdom of priests. So all of us who believe are supposed to be priests. So if you have your people and you have your God, how are you leveraging the two and bringing them together? This is what David loved to do and lived to do. This is what all of us have to do. Whoever you consider your people, you need to be presenting them to God. And whoever God has revealed himself to you to be, you need to present that to your people as well. Who are you being called to be a priest to? And are you being a priest to your people? Second one we kind of talked about last week, and it's just simply going to say this. Are you a kingdom builder or are you just about me and mine? Because what God calls us to do is to worry about, not even worry, to work for his kingdom come and his will be done. You know, when I look at my week, when I look at my year, when I look at the months, am I looking at what am I putting most of my time in? Is it the kingdom of God or is it the kingdom of Hank? And I get it, we all have to go to work, but when I go to work, am I saying, God, consecrate me so that even in this work, I can serve you and glorify you here? Or am I saying, God, just help me get through this Monday? 
All of us are called to be priests to our people, but more than that, all of us are called to build God's kingdom, and wherever you are, that's where God wants to use you. But here's the other crazy, scary part for me. Wherever you are, it's where God needs to use you. It's where God needs to use you because only you are you and only you are there. Only you have your people and only you have that relationship with God that you have. Bring the two together and build his kingdom together with him. Amen? And then that third one that David teaches us is, are you fully reliant on God? This is a question that you never answer yes. It's not like you check it off and then you're good for the rest of your life. I wish it was like that. It'd be great. But that's not how life happens, right? But God's going to keep asking you in this, are you fully relying on me? How about now? Are you still relying on me? Am I the one you're still going to run to and hold on to? Are you fully reliant on me? And this question happens every single day. and It'll happen every single year of your life. So when life throws its challenges and obstacles at you, you can say, you know what, God? I'm fully relying on you in this. And the way we do that is making sure our heart is right with God. So the first thing you can do is say, God, pray and build me to have the heart that's right with you. Give me a character where my natural inclination is for God and his kingdom, not for me and my own glory. God, let my default position be, how can I love the people around me more, not how I can get them to love me more. God, let my natural inclination be, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not what I need or what I don't need. Is your heart right with God? You know, we're going to close our service now. We're going to sing a song called Build My Life. Um, this is one of my favorite songs. It reminds us of this simply truth that Jesus is the only one who's worthy of our praise. He's the one who's worthy of all the songs that we can sing. But what I love about this song is the end challenge where it asks us to build our life on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. What David does and why David is so important, I think, is because simply his life is defined as a man after God's own heart because he built his life on foundation of Jesus Christ or Yahweh, his father. He built his life on Yahweh and we can do the same. So my sisters and brothers, my questions are simply this. When you go through this week, how are you being a priest to your people? Because David was. How are you going to be obsessed about building God's kingdom? Because David was. How are you going to be fully relying on God? Because as we go through David's story, you'll see the ups and downs, but always he comes back to God. How are you fully relying on God? And then the last one is, how is your heart? What is your natural tendency? What does God need to change? I'd like to also invite the intercessors up. We'd love to pray for you for anything that you need, anything that's going on. Please, please come up. We'll pray for you. We also have our prayer room on the side of Sanctuary. If you want some privacy, please use the prayer room as well. We have prayer rails up front. You can use those as well. Please come up. But as we sing this song, my sisters and brothers, my challenge to you is simply this. God anointed David for his work. What is God anointing you to do to make his kingdom come? Let's sing and pray together.